Well, hello again, everyone. Phil Giuliani here, and this program is One in Messiah on Messianic Lamb Network, and I'm glad that you're joining us. And it's always great to be here on this network and talk about the scriptures and talk about how the Tanakh, the Old Testament, is the foundation of the Brit Hadashah, the New Testament, and how is Paul pointed out in Romans 11 that we Gentiles are the wild olive branch that is grafted into the tree, into the domestic olive tree, and that we're nourished by the roots. And so it's always good to study that foundation. And here at One in Messiah, that's what we're dedicated to do. And at the beginning of every show, I like to point out that uh, in this ministry, we make these connections between the Tanakh and the New Testament and how things in the in the Tanakh prefigure and are types of Messiah and what happens in the New Covenant and how the New Covenant comes about. And that is um, based on two scriptures, really. Uh, John six, I'm sorry, John five thirty nine, where Yeshua says that all the scriptures are about Him, and Ephesians two fourteen and fifteen, that say that in His flesh Yeshua broke down the partition between the two, making one new man, and I think that's an important concept, um, critically important concept, because as I always point out, there's not a Jewish body of Messiah and a Gentile body of Messiah. There's one body of Messiah. And the body of Messiah, whether you call it church or congregation, but the body of Messiah, the church is the bride of Christ, the bride of the Messiah. And all through scripture, there's a bridal paradigm that's interwoven with all the prophecies and all the types and all the shadows and all the foretellings and all the prophecies. And so it's important to do. And I'm always lamenting the fact that there's such a low level of scriptural knowledge nowadays that even people who are running churches really don't have a grasp of the scripture or it's been restated or sometimes even twisted in ways that take the original meaning out of it and take the original power out of it. So we try not to do that here and we only use scripture. And in so many churches, especially I've not had the experience in congregations, but in so many churches where um, the leader, the pastor reads a book that he really likes. And then that book becomes the basis for the next eight or 10 weeks of sermons on Sunday morning. Um, My feeling is if you're going to preach, you should preach from the word itself because the word is living. It's, breathed out by the Holy Spirit, the Ruach. And it's great. There's many great books 
I read many of them. There are many great books. There's tremendously good Bible commentaries, of course. And it's not to make light of those, but the word, the scripture, the Bible, however you state it, should be the foundation of everything that we do. And so that's what we try to do here. And that's what we try to do in um, the live version of One in Messiah, which uh, I might as well start my advertising. The live version, uh, if you are in the Cleveland area, uh, we meet on Friday nights for an Arab Shabbat meeting. And we meet at 709 Brook Park Road in Brooklyn Heights. It's where Brooklyn Heights and Parma and Cleveland all come together. 709 Brook Park Road. And we say we start at 615, but by the time we start, it's usually about 625 or 630. And I'm sure you all can identify with that. And it's also live streamed on Facebook and on YouTube. And the... Um, the YouTube channel is One in Messiah Gift of Grace Ministries. One in Messiah Gift of Grace Ministries. So if you search for that site on YouTube, I don't know how many YouTube teachings there are there, but a lot of them. And if you go there, please subscribe and watch a few of them. Um, and then there's also a uh, podcast channel. Uh, if you go to your favorite podcast provider, I'm not sure if that's the right term, platform, I'm not sure that's the right term. Wherever you access podcasts or wherever you subscribe to podcasts, <clears throat> if you search for Dr. Phil slash Gift of Grace, Dr. Phil slash Gift of Grace, you'll find about 800 or so teachings there, and of course, in audio form. So we'll do a little more advertising at the end. There's a couple of websites as well. But it's, we not only have to try to get back to some level of scriptural literacy, of scriptural knowledge, and we have to do that ourselves. And of course, it's very time consuming it is incredibly rewarding. And I don't know how, as a believer, you would not want to study God's word. That just is beyond me. But we not only have to do it for ourselves, as Paul tells Timothy and Second Timothy, so that we can become better teachers, better preachers, grounded in what we believe and grounded in the word. And we're not going to do Timothy now, but maybe we'll do it someday. So Paul points out to this young um, protege of his that all of this scripture, which is breathed out by the Holy Spirit, is useful for teaching and reproval and building up of the body and, and, and so forth. And so it's critically important. And the other thing we should be doing is to encourage others to study it, not just read the sort of cliff note version, or not go to a Bible study that teaches fluffy, cutesy stuff and asks what 
your feelings are about everything that you're reading because your feelings have nothing to do with what's there. It is not about you and it's not about me. It's not about any of us. It's God's word and it's alive. And so this is where we are today. You know, in the, in the book of Amos, it talks about how there'll be a famine of the word. And I think we're there now. There won't be a famine of bread or water. It'll be a famine of the word. In other words, people won't know it. People won't be exposed to it. People won't care about it. And God says it'll be a famine. And that was before the Northern Kingdom fell in 722 BC. So that was written a long time ago. And not only did it apply to that Northern Kingdom, which was a disaster, but it applies to our society, which is a disaster and probably more of a disaster. But today, that's not what we're talking about today, but what we're talking about today um, is going to be an example of the concept of authority. And where is their authority? Where does authority come from? Who has authority? Who grants them the authority? And we know, of course, that there is a hierarchy of authority, no matter where you go, whether it's civil, whether it's spiritual. And we know that, you know, the, the city council of uh, any town USA does not have as much power as the United States Senate. And the mayor of Podunk USA doesn't have the power of the president of the United States. There is a line of authority and there is a line of authority also in scriptural things. And traditionally, every denomination has had their line of authority that started with Yeshua, of course, went to the apostles and the apostolic tradition that came from that was the apostles teaching their students, their protégés who then taught their students who then taught their students and both started out with the oral word, eventually became the written word, and then went down through the centuries. And now two millennia of that apostolic teaching. Um, in our time, we've seen teachings all over the place off the rails. And we'll talk about that sometime. Yeshua said, beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. And I can never remember who to attribute this quote to. But for the last few years, it's always been in my mind after I first heard it. And that was that what's worse than a wolf in sheep's clothing is a wolf in shepherd's clothing. And there are many of those today that are leading whole streams of Christianity down different roads and away from the word, or the word has been twisted, like I said before, into some other form. I always liked what um, 
Hank Hanegraaff used to say, the, if you ever listen to the Bible Answer Man show, he used to say that the scriptures are not like a wax nose that you can turn and make it go in any direction that you want. But in our time, we like doing that because we get bigger audiences if we do that. If we make the scriptures fun and breezy and light and fluffy, we get many, much many many more people at a Bible study than if we say, this is the word, this is what this means, and this is what the Hebrew means, this is what the Greek means, this is the reference for this, the reference for that. People don't have the capacity anymore to learn that, which is really a sad situation. But anyway, so authority is always important, and all authority, of course, comes from God. Yeshua is the head of the body, the head of the church, Paul tells us in no uncertain terms. He's the head. And so all authority ultimately is there. All authority is ultimately in him and from him. But we start in, I mean, if we start from the very beginning of the scriptures, we see authority passed down. We see Adam and Eve in the garden, and even though they had intimacy and fellowship with God on a very personal basis at all hours of the day, <laughs> talked with him, walked with him, and so forth, he had the authority to, of course, create them and then tell them what to do, what not to do. He gave them dominion over the earth dominion over all the animals and all the things in the sea. And I don't want all you environmentalists to send me nasty emails, but humans do in fact have authority over the earth and authority over the animals, authorities over the sea. Not that we should abuse all those things, but we have dominion over them. Uh, but we are also, of course, stewards. So, I don't want to go off on a tangent on that. So the authority begins there. And then as we see, starting from the call of Abraham, we see God's authority to sovereignly pick one man who at the time was 75 years old, not exactly at the prime of his career, but picked one man to begin the development of the chosen people so that Messiah would have physical human heredity, physical human ancestry. And that authority went down through the patriarchs. And then we see in the wilderness that Moses had authority, even though his brother Aaron was the high priest, Moses had authority over the people because he spoke with God and then he, he spoke with God and then he, then Moses spoke to the people and God wanted it that way. Eventually the people wanted it that way when they got terrified being at the base of Mount Sinai. So Moses's authority was challenged 
a few times. And if you've studied Torah, you know, the rebellions that went on, Korah and so forth. And there were punishments where God showed through his capital H authority, capital A, that Moses was the one who had authority there. Aaron, of course, had authority as high priest, but it's pretty clear that Moses had authority over the whole group, over the whole nation, including Aaron, the high priest. So then, as time went on, a system of elders developed, the 70 elders who had authority. We know in the book of Numbers, they were filled with the Spirit, and they prophesied, and it said they only prophesied once because it was a limited outpouring of the Spirit, not like what happened at Pentecost, not like what is happening now since Pentecost in terms of the full outpouring. Then we know the authority of Joshua taking people into the land. Then authority was given to judges. Then eventually there was a monarchy. Saul with his defective authority, wrong tribe, not a good leader, to David, who not only is from the tribe of Judah and was the king that God had Samuel anoint, of course, in Bethlehem, but he also would be the direct ancestor of Messiah Yeshua, so that Yeshua is, in fact, the son of David. Mary and Joseph were both in the line of David because all of this is preserved and all of it is kept in a, in a distinct, definite, organized way and is fulfilled in a distinct way, definite way, so that everything happens along the way at appointed times. And then after Solomon, you had kind of a disruption of authority. You had people, you had a king in the north, you had a king in the south. Nobody followed the law. There was corruption. At times, they even forgot to celebrate the feast days. But God showed his authority by punishments, by plagues, by exiles. So the authority lines were, were always clear. But before we get to, to the exact lesson for today, before all the time ticks away, um, it, it's interesting to note that after the exile from Babylon, there was no monarchy, but also there was no further idolatry that had caused the exile into Babylon in the first place and had also caused the destruction of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians. And so there's no more there's no description of idolatry after the exile. But then we have conquests 
the Greeks with Alexander came in, then the Romans came in. And as Jacob, Israel, the patriarch, prophesied back in Genesis 49, when the scepter departs from Judah, then the Messiah will come. Then Shiloh will come. So there was this time where there was no real civil authority. The civil authority was in the hands of foreigners. There was, however, of course, religious authority. There was still a high priest. Got a little messed up when the Romans came in because the Romans insisted that they have a say in who the high priest should be. But that notwithstanding, there was a religious authority who then formed themselves into these bodies like the Sanhedrin that was made up of various Pharisees. And we're not going to get into all that. But none of this was ordained in the scripture other than we know in Torah that there were 70 elders. We know that the canon of the Hebrew scripture was approved by governing bodies like that. But at the time of Yeshua, the Sanhedrin was the the spiritual power, so to speak. They were the religious leaders. They were, they decided who was following the law, who was not following the law, what was true, what was heresy. And of course, we know that this is what ultimately led to them realizing that Yeshua was a threat to them. And he was put to death basically at their, not command, but this is what they wanted to do. So authority has always been important. Now, as a, as the authority body in the land, the Sanhedrin regulated, and some of this through Pharisees, and we don't know, and I, I don't know, I have not read all the historical records. Some of you probably have, but they decided what was going to be done at the temple and who was going to do it and how it was going to be done based not only on the law that was given to Moses, but also on the traditions which had developed over the centuries. And there were a lot of traditions that developed over the centuries. And many of these traditions, as you know, were taught as law. They were given equal weight, equal um, status with the law that had been given to Moses on Mount Sinai. These were, the law was in fact law given in Exodus. And to keep in mind that in the book of Exodus, Shemot, the whole language of the book is the language of a king talking to his vassals and talking to his subjects. There's not some democratic way that Moses gets to vote on the law or that the people take a poll, or that there's any input by the people into what the law is. The law comes from God and is absolute. It's 
not a democracy. So the law had authority, of course. Traditions were added, and a lot of them were added. As we get closer to Passover, we can, if you just look at the Passover traditions, you can see how different that is from the scriptural Passover in the book of Exodus. So Yeshua confronted these guys and at one point says, your traditions make my word of no effect. And he explained why. Because you teach the traditions of men as the law, capital L. So they didn't like to hear that. They were the ones that had authority. He was branded as a troublemaker. He was not the only rabbi that had a following. There were many. He was not the only rabbi that walked around followed by groups of students. There were many. In the non-Jewish world, the best example is the Greek philosophers who had schools, which basically consisted of one of them sitting in a place surrounded by students, and they listened to what they said, learned what they said, and then were influenced by that thinking. <clears throat> it wasn't exactly like that, but it's the same idea. So many of these other rabbis, and they were, of course, were called rabbis because they were teachers. I mean, in the post-temple time and in the great diaspora that began in 70 AD, local synagogues all over the world, including anywhere you might mention in the United States, we have many synagogues in the Cleveland area. We have almost 100,000 Jews that live in the Cleveland area. There are many synagogues. The leader of each synagogue is called a rabbi, but this is this was not the case at the time of Yeshua. This was not the case in the development of the Tanakh. But um, the question of authority was what they always used against him. And so today's little talk is called, By What Authority? And we're going to take an example of that. We have to keep in mind that Although Yeshua taught mostly in Galilee, even once in Samaria for a little while, although he told his followers not to go to Samaria, he went to Samaria just to encounter one woman, the woman at the well, of course. But the question always came up, of authority. And this is why, you know, I, I was always amazed before I thought about these things or before I was a believer that when you heard a gospel reading and it always said, oh, then there was a Pharisee there. Or, oh, then there were some Pharisees. And I thought, what are these guys doing? Following them around, you know, following the apostles around like secret police? Well, as a matter of fact, they did because anyone who was a teacher, they kind of monitored especially him because he had such 
a powerful following and a large following because his follower his followers had seen a lot of things happen. So they didn't know much about this. They understood that this was trouble and that he was kind of upsetting the whole system, just like religious leaders today. They didn't want their system upset. They were the ones in control. They were the ones with the, quote, authority, unquote. And so we don't know if they passed out licenses or permits or, like today, somebody can come and say, I was ordained at a such and such a seminary, or I was ordained at such and such a Bible school and blah, 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 and produce a document saying, I was ordained at this seminary, and that has some authority to it. So they, these guys did not did not understand, although as Paul tells us in the book of Romans, of all the people, they should have understood what was going on. They should have understood what was going on. All they did was study the scripture the Torah, the prophets, the writings, and throughout the whole Tanakh, they should have understood that all these things they had been studying for years seemed to be being fulfilled. But they didn't. And we mentioned a couple of, I don't know, a couple weeks or so ago, and You know, when little 40-day-old Yeshua is presented in the temple by Mary and Joseph, and the prophet Simeon is there, who was told by the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he saw the Messiah. And in Luke's gospel, Simeon says that this child is a 40-day-old boy, that this child is going to be responsible for the rise and fall of many in Israel. And boy, did that turn out to be the case. (laughs) So anyway, authority was always an issue. Where did you get this authority? And even though they didn't understand the movement, the one thing they did know was they're not the ones that gave them the authority. They're not the ones that gave them the certificate. They're not the ones that gave them the diploma. They're not the ones that gave him a license or whatever they had in those days. So this was always a problem. And this is why this always led to confrontations. And there's so many of them. You don't keep the Sabbath. Your disciples don't keep the Sabbath. You're possessed by a demon. You're a Samaritan. You're... You can't be from God because you don't keep the Sabbath. Go on and on and on. And I'm sure that you've all read read, all have read the Gospels to see all these confrontations that went on because it appears to them, and in some ways it was true, they had the authority. They didn't understand why how he had any authority. We don't know all their conversations. He had not gone to a seminary or a Bible school or a yeshiva. Yet, as the people said, 
he taught with authority, not like the scribes and Pharisees, which they probably didn't like comments like that. But we're going to get to a question that is in Matthew 21. We're going to use Matthew's version of this, starting in 23. Now, when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching, keep that in mind, as he was teaching, and said, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? So here you can see their position. He's in the temple. He's teaching in the temple. As he's teaching, they interrupt him. The chief priests, the elders, people from the Sanhedrin, these would have been Pharisees, would have been scribes. And the simple question is, as he's teaching, who gave you the authority to do these things? Now, these things is an interesting expression. Were they referring to the teaching? Were they referring to his preaching? Were they referring to the miracles, the healings and the multiplication of food and the raising some people from the dead? But, you know, is that the thing they were talking about? Most likely, though, in this case, I think they were mostly talking about teaching in the temple. The temple, as you know, is hard to overestimate the importance of it. It's very hard to overestimate the importance of the temple. The temple was not a cathedral. It was not a church. It was not like some chief cathedral that took a whole big area in and there was a bishop or some other elder there. The temple was the center of everything. And in particular, the sacrifices and all the rituals of worship because they could only be done at the temple. You can't just have chaos in the temple. You can't just have any person who feels like it walking around the temple yelling and teaching. So they say, what are you doing? Who gave you authority to do these things? But Yeshua answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. Isn't that awesome? Verse 25, the baptism of John, was it, where was it from? From heaven or from men? So he answers a question with a question. This happens very commonly in the Gospels. In fact, I read something where he's asked 100 and I can't remember now what it was, 160 questions or something. And he only gave a yes or no answer to three of them. I've never checked that out to see if it's true, but um, it might be. I mean, here we see an example of he answers a very profound question with a very profound question. So what's the setting here? This is after Palm Sunday. 
this is two, three days before he's going to be crucified. This is two or three days before the Passover. This is the last few days of his earthly life as it had been. That's the setting. So the chief priests and the elders are listening to this. They were the teachers. They were the judges. This was where they worked. This was this was like the center of everything. This was where the power was. You know, even, I mean, comparing it to the Vatican doesn't even really, it was more than that. <clears throat> and so this is where the teachers, the judges were centered. And these guys should have been looking for Messiah. They should have been looking for the Messianic kingdom. But instead of doing that, they were in opposition. Instead of doing that, they were confronting these teachings that they were hearing from someone who obviously had power and authority, not like they had, but they had not given him permission or any legal, I'm not even sure what to call it. They had not given him the, the license to do it. They had not given him the permission to do it. They had not looked over his teachings, so to speak. They didn't do like an Inquisition thing where they would look through the book and say, okay, you have to recant this or we're going to burn you or whatever it is. No, they listened to him and they said, we're opposed to this. Who gave you this authority? So they interrupt him while he's teaching. They don't want to hear him. But worse yet, they don't want others to hear him. Kind of makes your mind flash to Matthew 23, where Yeshua says to them, not only do you not go into the kingdom, but you prevent others from going. And this has been an issue all through the last two millennia as well. We have religious leaders to this day who may prevent people from going into the kingdom based on what they teach them. But here, they interrupt him while he's teaching because they don't want the people there to hear him. They don't want to hear it either, but they've heard enough by this time because their authority was being questioned. And then when he says, okay, I'll answer your question if you answer a question of mine, imagine this group of men that have all this power and they're wearing all this cool stuff. Everybody says they're the holy guys. I'm not a holy guy, but man, those guys are the holy guys. And you have somebody who is a rabbi who's walking around the countryside with a group of followers questioning their authority, asking them a question. They're the ones that are supposed to know this. Reminds me, too, in John um, 9, I think it is, not John 9, where the blind man is cured. 
And the Pharisees keep asking him what the story was. And they say, well, we're, we're disciples of Moses. We don't know who this guy is. And the blind man, who's totally uneducated, says to them, oh, that's funny. You guys know everything, but you don't know where this guy's from. Very profound. They didn't know where he was from and didn't want to know where he was from. Never asked him a single question along those lines. So they had to deal with him here because he's in the temple. He's on their home turf. In the temple. He's not walking around someplace in Galilee. He's not in some obscure wilderness teaching like John the Baptist was. He's in the temple. He's on their home turf. They have to deal with him in the center of their power. And it was Passover time. It was preparations were being made for Passover. Well, what does that mean? Well, Pesach, Passover, was one of the pilgrimage feasts, one of the three. So people were coming into the city. There were more people in the temple than usual, way more people in Jerusalem than usual. People were everywhere with lambs ready for the Passover. The sacrifices were in the temple. All these people were there. And so more people than usual would have heard him teaching. So he goes to the temple to teach at this critical time. And they basically say, okay, what are your credentials? Who who gave you authority to do these things? Wasn't us. Who do you think you are? How could you be doing these things? You know, many, some other places it says people marveled at what he said. People marveled at what his authority was. And for somebody from Galilee to do these things was unprecedented. And so they have to deal with him on their home turf, so to speak. And they have to also do the crowd management, the public relations of you people shouldn't be listening to this guy because we're actually pretty mad at him. We don't know who he is, where he comes from, and we don't know who he thinks he is, but this is the temple. And all of you are here for Passover And you shouldn't be listening to this guy. You should be doing what we tell you to do. So a few days before this, of course, was Palm Sunday to fulfill Zechariah 9.9. Read that for your homework. It'll blow you away if you don't already know it. But he enters the city in triumph. And people are praising and yelling, Hosanna. There's a cleansing of the temple. There were healings going on. He was teaching in the temple all those days. Didn't stay in the temple. He would leave and go to the Mount of Olives and come back. There's no place in the scripture where it says that Yeshua stayed in Jerusalem. 
Now, if there is, I haven't come across it, but it's pretty interesting that he goes to the Mount of Olives. So he got all these hosannas and praises, not from them, because if you remember, the religious leaders told him, Rabbi, make them stop, because we can't have this kind of commotion here. We can't have this craziness going on. We can't have some street preacher coming in here and causing all this commotion. They didn't stop to think, whoa, wait a minute. Zechariah 9.9 says that we should rejoice because the king is coming into the city and he's riding on a donkey and he's bringing salvation with him. Hmm. And here we have this man riding into the city on a donkey and there are people waving branches like you do at Sukkot and, and chanting Hosanna to the son of David. Hmm, maybe we should think about this. No, they didn't think about it at all. The purpose was to trip him up, of course, and to embarrass him in front of the crowd that was listening to him. So they asked him the question. And again, we're not going to put up all the scriptures because the time is running short. But you you know this. Um if you don't, and I strongly recommend that you read it over for your homework. But the purpose was to trip him up. And that's why they asked the question. We're going to embarrass him in front of these guys. We're going to humiliate him so that he doesn't come back tomorrow. Or he doesn't come back the next day. They didn't really have to worry about that because in a little while he was going to tell them that they would not see him again until they said, Baruch Habal. Hashem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And until they said that, they would not be seeing him again. But they were about to find that out. So now these really smart guys, these holy guys were in a dilemma. And the dilemma was, as as they stated in that passage, that if they say John's baptism, if they say it came from God, well, they asked, I'm sorry, they asked him the question so they could trip him up. So if he said it came from God, they would accuse him of blasphemy, like they would do in a, a two or three more days. If he remained silent, they would ridicule him. If he said, I'm not sure, they would ridicule him. But what they didn't see right away was that he had put them in that same position by asking this question, by answering the question with a question, because he, of course, knew what they were doing, knew what their plan was, knew what they were up to. And as he put it, you know, we're like sheep among the wolves. We have to be wise. We have to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. We have to know what's going on around us. We do, we're not complete pacifists that say, well, you can do whatever you want to us. It's okay. We will say that if it comes to martyrdom, but we also have to be shrewd and understand the spiritual attacks that are coming. So they, he knew what they were doing and how they were doing it. Because after all, and people heard the question, after all, 
John's mission, John's baptism, either had to be from God or it was in his own mind. That's the only two choices. The only two real choices. And it, it kind of reminds you of uh, in the book of Acts where Gamaliel says, well, if this movement is from men, it'll disappear. If this is from God, you won't be able to stop it. You'll be fighting against God. So now these guys are in a bind because he's asked them the question. It says, and they reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Yeshua and said, we do not know. Isn't that awesome? So they mean to trip him up. He turns the question on them. And they admit they don't know. It says they reasoned among themselves. Because, of course, they were the bureaucracy. They had to protect themselves. Anywhere where there's a bureaucracy, whether it's the government or a church, the bureaucracy pr protects itself. First order of business of any bureaucracy is to protect itself because this is the authority structure. But they had to also worry about what people would think. How is this going to impact their, the view that the public had of them? How is this going to impact their reputation? They weren't really worried about the truth. They weren't really worried about the basis of the question. They were in a bind because they weren't sure how to answer it without getting into trouble. And there was no way to answer it without getting into trouble. So if they said it was from God, now Yeshua said to them, if you, you know, they said among themselves, well, if we say it's from God, he's going to say, then why did you believe him? Well, that's interesting because John's ministry was to be the messenger that led to Yeshua, the Messiah. So if they said John's teaching was from God, they would have to acknowledge that Messiah was there standing in front of them because John had pointed to him literally pointed to him, probably with his finger, saying, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John's an amazingly interesting person, of course, and he's really the last prophet who not only prophesies what Messiah is going to do, but points him out. They knew that John had preached repentance. And they knew that Jesus was doing miracles and that he also had talked about repentance. So if they said that the, that John's authority was from God, they would look pretty bad because they'd been opposing this at every turn. So they were really in a bind. They were the religious authorities. 
when they got together in their little group, when they got together in their little huddle, when they got together in their little meeting, they should have discussed it among themselves and then ruled on it because they ruled on everything else. Whether it was a matter of doctrine or how to interpret scripture, they ruled on it. But here, they should have ruled on it, but did not because they were worried about the two answers, that either answer they gave was going to get them in trouble. But when the whoever their spokesman was says, we don't know, people would have been shocked because these people who are standing around in the temple listening to Yeshua are used to these guys with all their stuff on, all their vestments, all their tefillim, all the long prayers that they said, all the stern looks they gave everybody. They thought these guys were holy, righteous, and they knew everything. <clears throat> and they would have been shocked to hear these guys say, well, we don't know. So they were the leaders were very worried about what they would say more than they were worried about what the truth of the matter was. Because if they said it's from God, they would have acknowledged John, they would have acknowledged repentance, they would have acknowledged Yeshua, they would have acknowledged the fact that John not only fulfilled passages in Isaiah, but also in Malachi 3, that all these things would have come together. Around this time, the, these same leaders tell the people, has any prophet come from Galilee? And the answer, of course, is no. But they didn't bother to ask him where he was born. They knew all the prophecies. So they worried more about what they were going to say than what the truth was. So the common people that were listening to the teaching and that had been kind of informed of everything that he had done in Galilee, things he had done in Jerusalem, the common people understood this better than the holy guys did, than the people that studied every minute, every day, debating, what does this word mean? What does this phrase mean? What does this mean? All the different possible things, debates. And that's great. Once you made bar mitzvah, once you were bar mitzvah, it gave you the right to debate the scriptures, to discuss the scriptures. This is all they did. But the common people who didn't couldn't really do that because they're just trying to make a living, they're trying to survive, they understood this better than the holy ones did. This was backwards. And as I said, this is exactly what Simeon prophesied. Many in Israel were going to fall. These guys were going to be around for, oh, another 30, 35 years or so. They were going to be gone, never to be there again. Though the Sanhedrin was reconstituted in December of 2004, but that's a different story. So Yeshua concludes, and he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. They were not fit to discuss his authority. They weren't worthy to know about his authority. 
he had no need to debate his authority. He had no need to defend himself because he knew who he was and what he was doing and that he had authority that they could not even imagine. And he was not going to discuss that with them. This was not a democracy. Their authority was pale in comparison. So he says, fine, you don't want to answer the question? I'm not going to tell you either where I get this authority from. Hope you've enjoyed this. And so here we are. It's the end already. I've already gone about 12 seconds over. But um, thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. And come back again next week. And we'll be here with another teaching. Have an awesome week.